This morning we begin the second half of Ephesians. So almost all of Paul's letters are divided between a section that's really heavy theologically and heavy on doctrine, and then a section that's more practical, more about doing, more about how we can apply what he has previously just taught. And so today begins that second section of the book. So if you're joining us for the first time, quick recap. Ephesians chapter 1, he starts by talking about the spiritual blessings that come from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Then he moves into an introductory prayer in the second half of chapter 1 that he prays over all of the Ephesian believers. In chapter 2, he divides it out into the first half, which is the vertical relationship between God and humanity and how that has been severed as a result of sin. But God, he tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, being rich in mercy. And then he goes on to talk about how Jesus is the one who reconciles humanity to a holy God. In the second half of chapter 2, he then expands out that theme for us to begin thinking, now that we know that our relationship to God can be reconciled, how can human beings with each other be reconciled to each other? And the answer is, once again, Christ. Jesus is the one who brings us all together. And so he digs a little bit deeper into chapter 3. And he begins to talk about how it's possible that Jews and Gentiles are no longer separated, but are now one through the blood of Christ. And this mystery that Paul tells us about in Ephesians chapter 3 is that all people, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what social class, no matter where they come from, if they are a follower of Jesus Christ, then we are all one body. And so, today as we get into chapter 4, Paul is going to begin to flesh out how is it possible that this body of believers that is comprised of people from all different walks of life with all different sorts of giftedness, how can they be united? And so this morning, we're going to try to distill verses 1 through 16 into three exhortations. Number one, it's to strive for unity. Number two, it's to respect the gifts. And then number three, it's to pursue maturity. Strive for unity, respect the gifts, pursue maturity. Number one, Paul talks about striving for unity in this passage. And he begins the more practical side of his letter, urging the Ephesian believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they have been called. Now we have to go back and dig and investigate what was this calling. We talked about it in chapter 1, verses 4 to 6. This is the calling. Let me read it for us again. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That is the calling that everyone who is in Christ has been called to. And now in chapter 4, Paul is saying, Stay true to that calling. Walk in a manner worthy of that calling. He is telling them to walk according to that calling with humility, with gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. 
Humility is not thinking less about yourself, but it's thinking about yourself less. Let me say it again. Humility is not thinking less about yourself, but rather thinking about yourself less. And that's not original to me. It's way too nice of a quote to be original. It's from Tim Keller, okay? Did you know, though, in this passage, and actually in all of the New Testament, this Greek word for humility that Paul uses here is never used in any other type of literature in the Greco-Roman world. In other words, Christians, in many ways, were introducing this concept of humility into the Greco-Roman world, where everything in ancient Rome is about elevating yourself about being as prideful as possible, bragging about your accomplishments, having a lot of money, being rich and famous and known. So when Paul inserts into this letter this understanding of humility that was not even known in the day, he's telling these Ephesian believers, you're acting in a way that is completely foreign to anyone else around you. He's telling the Ephesian believers to humble themselves and to act in a way that no other people group at that time were used to acting. Then he tells them to be patient. Uh Uh-oh. How many of you would consider yourself to be patient? You don't have to raise your hand. Most of us aren't. I'm not. I heard a story about a certain football coach in this state who I'm also pretty sure is not patient. And here's how the story went. He was interviewed on a television show. The producers whispered into his ear, Coach, would you mind counting to 10 so that we can get a mic check? And he goes, one, two, and he stopped. And all of the beat writers heard about this story that covered this particular coach, and they said, I could have told you there was no way that man was going to count to 10. Some of us are not patient We don't do well when we have to wait in line. Nothing makes me more frustrated than when I'm in line, wherever it might be, and I think out of the corner of my eye that somebody might be breaking in front of me. That's a (laughs) no-no. Now, I'm not going to say anything verbally out loud, but in my mind, I'm perhaps doing what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, if you're angry with your brother, it's like you're murdering your brother. That's how serious I take it. Do not break in front of me in line. All right? I don't have a lot of patience, right? Many of us struggle with this. But Paul is challenging the Ephesian believers and he's challenging all of us to live with patience and to bear with one another in love. Now, many of us think this in our minds when we're out and about going about our day and we see things that bug us or irritate us. Here's what we say to ourselves. Here's the self-talk that happens in our minds. If only everybody would do things the way that I do them, the world would be a better place. We all think these thoughts, but that contradicts Paul's idea here of bearing with one another in love. Brothers and sisters, I completely am aware that you might do things differently than I do. It's the same way that I would do things differently than you do. And maybe one of us each thinks that we could do it better than the other. But ultimately, Paul is challenging all Christians in the room. We have to bear with one another in love. 
We have to be patient with one another. That's what Christians are called to do. Paul goes on to say that the church of Jesus Christ should be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want you to focus in on that word eager for a moment. It means to do something with intense effort and motivation. So if you're going to be eager for unity with the bond of peace, you actually have to be proactive in doing so. It's not a passive thing. The entire church body is responsible for the unity of that church body. Now, we have biblical evidence in Acts chapter 6 of this body that ends up becoming known as the deacons, who when there was conflict between the Hebraic Jews and the Hellenistic Jews, the deacons inserted themselves into this situation to basically fight for church unity. So that's one of the earliest pictures we have in the early church of a group of people coming together to fight for unity within the body. And yes, it's the primary role of a deacon, but it's not just for deacons. All of us should be fighting ferociously for church unity in our midst. If you enjoy church drama or church controversy or church gossip, then you're not really doing what Paul teaches in this passage. We should be the first as brothers and sisters in Christ to squash anything that might cause disunity, not just within this body here at First Baptist Dothan, but disunity within the church globally because the bride of Christ is who King, who King Jesus came to die for. And it matters that much. So we strive for unity because of all that Paul talks about and outlines in verses 4 through 6 of this passage. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We've preached or I've preached this passage at least two or three times since I've been here. That's seven times Paul says one here. One commentator reminds us of this. It's not that Gentiles become Jews, as in the Old Testament, or Jews become Gentiles, but that unbelieving Jews and unbelieving Gentiles become one body of believers when they place their faith in the work of Christ at Calvary. So now, all Jews that are in Christ... All Gentiles that are in Christ, they come together. The same spirit that lives in the Jews lives in the Gentiles. The same spirit that lives in my friend's heart in West Africa right now is the same spirit that resides in my heart. The church is unified, not just in this sanctuary, but globally, all around the world at this moment. Our brothers and sisters in South Asia, our brothers and sisters in Canada, in Australia, you name it, any spot on the map, if they are in Christ, we are united by the same Spirit. And that is a powerful, powerful testimony to the world around us. Many of you know of our partnership that we have with the Tea River missionaries that we have been praying for. And if you're on our prayer list, I send out to you regular email updates with these missionaries. And I received one not long ago. I want to share with you a story that they sent to me. They had been 
witnessing to a Hindu man by the name of Jibbin. And Jibbin was a Hindu man who was participating in translating the Old Testament into the standard Bangla language where these missionaries reside. He was not a believer in Christ. But the missionaries and all of the church planners and the partners, we had been praying for Jibbin that as he was engaged in translating the Bible, audio Bible, from one language to this standard Bangla language, that he would be converted to faith in Christ. Simply working on this project. Well, we received word not long ago that he became a believer in Jesus Christ. Simply by being hired to do a job translating the Old Testament from one language to the next. Brothers and sisters, the word of God works. It changes people's lives. Sadly, we got another update not long after that this man, Jibbin, who was converted to faith in Christ, died of a heart attack. The word of God is living and active. And I want you to know that the spirit of God that resides in your heart today, if you were a follower of Jesus, is the same spirit that resided in Jibbin as he faithfully proclaimed the gospel by translating it from one language to another. We in this body must strive for unity because we all have the same spirit. We all worship the same Jesus. We were all baptized symbolically into the family of God. We must strive for unity. Number two, we also should respect the gifts that Paul talks about in this passage. Every single person in this room, whether you know it or not, and if you are in Christ, the moment the Holy Spirit took up residency in your heart, you now have a gift to be used for Christ's church. In the midst of our unity, having one spirit, one faith, one baptism, we have a diversity of gifts in this room right now. In the midst of our unity, there is great diversity. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. Paul tells us not only does that gift come to us from Christ, Christ is the one who determines the extent to which we have that particular gift. In verse 8, Paul is making reference back to Psalm 68. And he's interpreting that psalm in light of Christ. In the context of Psalm 68, 18, the psalmist is summarizing military victories that God gave to his people as he led them from Mount Sinai to Jerusalem. And the gifts that God received among humanity were the booty of war and the tribute that conquered peoples paid to the God of Israel. So Paul takes this Psalm 68, 18, and instead of God receiving these gifts, he reinterprets it in light of Christ, and he says he gave these gifts. He's referring to Jesus giving gifts to his church. And all this talk of ascending and descending that you read about in those verses, that is showing that Christ has triumphed over all of his enemies. Now that Christ has defeated his enemies, he sits on his throne and he gives gifts to his people, the children of God in his church. Paul goes on to talk about just some of these gifts in this passage. Not all, but some. 
So let's break down the gifts that he talks about. He talks about apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Apostles, we basically have three different type of apostle that is talked about in the New Testament. You have those that actually walked with Christ and were witnesses to his earthly ministry. You have Paul himself that we read about in Ephesians chapter 3, how he received his apostleship through special revelation given to him directly from Jesus. And then you have a third type of apostle. These apostles were gifts to God's church. The first two are more like an office. The third is the type that Paul is talking about here. Those who were tasked with taking the gospel to places and starting and establishing churches. People like Barnabas, James, Apollos. These are apostles. Then he talks about prophets. He's not talking about Old Testament prophets. He's talking about men or women who receive a particular message to speak to the church or to an individual at a specific time. That's the type of prophet Paul is talking about here. Then we have evangelists, which are really not that much different from the evangelists that we have today. These people, they travel from place to place with the good news of Christ. And in the New Testament, we have men like Philip and Timothy who are often called evangelists. They go from one location to the next. They proclaim the gospel. Even if they might be planted in a location for a specific period of time, their job is to go and proclaim the gospel to others. Then we have shepherds. And many of the English translations end up translating this as pastor. This is one whose primary job is to care for the flock of sheep that God has entrusted to him. They care for them. They encourage them. They protect them from false teaching. They handle administrative duties for the flock. I was having a conversation with a brother in this church the other day, and we were, I was sharing with him about the burden that I feel to shepherd this congregation and how important it is to me and how much it matters to me. And he gave this great phrase. He said, I love what you're saying because your primary job is to create or to mold grade A sheep. And that is so true. It's it's my job as the shepherd, as one of the leaders in this church, to create and mold according to Christ grade A sheep. The finest sheep around. Now, don't view sheep as a derogatory term here. Sheep is good. That's what God has called pastors to do, to care for the flock, to protect the flock, to weed out false teaching, to embrace good biblical teaching, to encourage when people need to be encouraged, to discourage when somebody is living a life That is not God-honoring. That is the job of the shepherd. And then the gift of teaching. These are those that communicate the revelation of God's word to the people. Now, oftentimes, pastors or shepherds and teachers get lumped into the same category. But these are actually two separate gifts that Paul is talking about here. Now, it's possible that... Teachers can also 
be decent at shepherding. And it's possible that shepherds can also be decent or maybe even good teachers. But Paul is talking about two distinct gifts here. Pastors or shepherds are often teachers, but teachers, biblically speaking, are not shepherds or pastors. There is a difference in how Paul is defining those here. What you need to know and what Paul is teaching us here is Jesus did not ascend to heaven, now seated at the right hand of his father, and say, good luck, church. I hope you have a fun time figuring it out. He didn't do that. He's given us a plan. He's given us these gifts within the body. He specifically gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And they are not people that we simply are to put up with or manage. They are gifts to God's church. Now, I know what you're thinking. Are are you tooting your own horn right now? No. I'm talking about anybody that has this gift. Whether in this church or others, God has organized his church in this way. So whether you like me or not, respect the gifts that God has ordained for his church in the body. And then number three, Paul encourages the Ephesian believers as he encourages us to pursue maturity. Now that Paul has explained what the gifts are, he's going to spend the rest of this passage in verses 12 through 16 basically telling us why those gifts are important and the purpose for why they exist. Here we go. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers exist for this reason, for the building up of the body of Christ. The gifts that we just talked about exist not for the glory of the individual that has the gift, but for the building up of the sheep that God has entrusted to that particular person. So while each apostle, prophet, evangelist, teacher, or shepherd might have a unique giftedness, they are to use that giftedness for the equipping of the body. That's why the gift has been given. Not to hold on to, not to glorify the one with that gift, but to equip those in the church to become more like Christ. If you've ever heard this phrase before, said it, or thought it in your mind, it would be a good time to confess that sin before God. And here's the phrase. Isn't that why we pay the staff to do all the work? Aren't they the ones that should be evangelizing, visiting people in the hospital, doing all of the work? Isn't that why we pay the preacher to do those things? And the answer, biblically speaking, would be no. Whoever taught you that was a bad teacher. And as your shepherd... I'm supposed to protect you from bad teaching. And that, brothers and sisters, is bad teaching. You are responsible to go out and do the work of the ministry. It doesn't mean that I don't. By all means, I'm out evangelizing. I'm out having lunch with people, discipling people. Yes, I know that I'm supposed to do that. But it does not rise and fall with the one standing up on this podium. It is every brother and sister in Christ. 
And part of my job as the shepherd, as one of the leaders, is to equip you to go out and do this. And if you're not able to do that and you don't have the confidence to do it or you don't feel equipped to do it, then that rests on me. But all of us are to go out and do the work that God has called for us to do. It's a church-wide problem. Discipleship, evangelism, is not just the preacher or the pastor's responsibility. A healthy church is one where all of the members are fully confident to go and serve the church and the community because they have been properly equipped to do so. The work of being equipped, Paul tells us here, is for the goal of maturity that is expressed in this passage through three prepositional phrases. To the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, number two, to mature manhood, and number three, and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Paul reinforces the idea of unity of the faith, but also unity of the knowledge of the Son. So yes, we want unity, but yes, we want to believe accurately what we believe about Jesus. We want to know what the scriptures teach about Jesus. And we want to be unified in that belief. Mature, ma- mature manhood is the second goal. If we were to leave today, here's a thought experiment for you. If you were to leave today, drive down Main Street, heading home or wherever you're going, and you see a 47-year-old man sitting on a bench drinking milk from a bottle, what would you think? Well, we would think a lot of things, but let's think through what we could actually communicate out loud together, okay? At the very minimum, you would think this guy is incredibly immature. He never moved on from milk to solid food. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing more discouraging than seeing somebody who's a follower of Jesus converted to faith in Christ at 10, 12, 14, and now they're 55 or they're 60 or they're 70, and they're still as immature as the day they first came to faith in Christ. That is not what we want. And yes, it's my job to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but it's your job to go out and do that ministry. We want to be mature followers of Christ, and we do that when we exercise the gift that God has given us. Number three, our union with Christ is not yet complete and we continue to grow to reach the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So all of these prepositional phrases that I just mentioned, they have a corporate dimension to them. Don't view these primarily as individual goals. We live in the most individualized society in the history of the world. Everything is about me, me, me. Paul is writing to a church. He is concerned corporately about everyone within the body. Yes, you should be concerned that you're personally growing in maturity, but you should also be concerned that other brothers and sisters in the body are doing the same. Don't just stop with the individual goals you have for maturity. Desire maturity for the whole body. Why is maturity so important for what Paul goes on to talk about? How easy it is to be tossed 
to and fro by bad teaching, by bad doctrine. He says the deceitful schemes of man. So the leaders of the church are to equip the saints for the work of ministry, not only so people will be mature in their faith, but that they will be able to decipher between biblical teaching and non-biblical teaching. So that we won't create a group of people that major on minor doctrines of the faith and then vice versa, elevate minor doctrines of the faith to major issues. That's part of maturity. Knowing the difference between primary, secondary, tertiary, theological issues of the faith. We have to know what those are. And we can't elevate something to a different category that it doesn't need to go to. If we're not growing in our maturity, then it's easy to prioritize the wrong things in church. Prioritizing numerical growth at the expense of conversion growth. Prioritizing the worship style rather than what the Bible teaches about worship and what it's supposed to look like. Prioritizing the the personality of the preacher or the people on stage rather than the words that they're speaking that come out of their mouth. It's so easy to be tossed to and fro by the latest trend and the latest fad. And if we're not spiritually mature, we'll never sit down and ask ourselves, what does this particular song, this particular program, this particular person have to say to me that aligns with the Word of God? So ultimately, the standard for everything we do in this body is this. It's this book. And that's how we grow in maturity. Maturity is way, way underrated. There's nothing that I would want more for our congregation than for us to be full of people that know the word of God, they know right from wrong, and they know how to sift through when false doctrine or inaccurate teaching begins to creep in our midst. Paul contrasts this deceit with speaking the truth in love and growing up into him who is the head, into Christ, he says. The goal of all of our spiritual maturity is Christ. Our desire corporately as a church should be to grow up and be as much like Christ as we can possibly be. That's the goal. That's why we're here. The whole body is held together by Christ. And every part of the body matters. But that body only grows and builds itself up in love as each part of the body does its work. So in other words... If you have a gift and you're not using that gift, whatever it might be, you're damaging this local body of Christ because God has given you a gift and you're not being obedient to use that gift within his church. And when the church is not properly utilizing its gift, it becomes easier to be immature. And when you become immature in your faith, it becomes easier to be tossed to and fro but whatever might come in and out of the culture. Because ultimately the faith is not resting on this foundation. It's resting on some type of worldly mentality of what spirituality means and what the church means. Pursuing maturity is only possible 
when we are operating effectively as individuals with our giftedness, which strengthens the church, creates maturity within the church, and ultimately then enhances our witness to the world outside this building. Remember, we've been talking about the church is the gospel made visible to the community. The most powerful witness that we have when we leave here, obviously we have the Holy Spirit, but is that when people see us, they see somebody who is incredibly mature. Not mature according to emotions or intellect, but mature in their spirituality. They're able to handle situations. They're able to love people that many people consider to be unlovable. They're able to interact and communicate with people with grace and truth and kindness. That's the type of maturity that Paul is talking about in this passage. But here's the whole picture here. Paul is writing to Christians in this passage. He's writing to believers. If you're not a believer today, let me urge you to do what Jesus constantly talks about. Repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. Trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And if you are saved today, if you are a follower of Jesus and don't know perhaps what your gift is, or number two, you have a gift and you're not using it, I want you to know, number one, we can help you with that. But number two, you're damaging the witness of this body not to use the gifts that God has given you. You're not being a good steward of the gift that God has given you to be a witness for the community at this church. So we really have three scenarios today as we close. Three groups of people. We have those who have a gift. They are faithfully using that gift for the glory of God in this church and in the community. Number two, we have those who have a gift and for whatever reason are not using the gift that God has given them. Paul's encouragement to you, my encouragement to you, is to grow up and use that gift for the glory of God. And then number three, we have people in this room who have no idea what their gift is because they don't have the spirit of Christ residing in their heart because they've never repented of their sin and believed in the finished work of Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection. And my plea to you today is to believe in Jesus, to repent of your sin and trust in Christ for salvation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this passage that Paul gives us as we now get into that more practical side of this book. Thank you for the church. Thank you for the unification that we see between Jew and Gentile in Ephesus and the unification that we see in this room today. People from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, all different giftedness, they are unified by the Spirit of Christ within us. So we celebrate the unity that we have in the midst of our diversity. God, however you need to speak to us in these moments, we might have some people 
that don't know what their gift is. I pray that they would reach out to me or someone else. We can help them do that. I pray for those that are faithfully using their gift, that they would not grow weary in doing good, that they would faithfully serve as long as you give them the opportunity to. And then number three, for those that perhaps have a gift and used it at one time but currently are not, I pray through your spirit that you would convict them, help them to see through your word the value that they bring to this body and how we need all of the parts working together for the good of this congregation and for your glory. We ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.